0: Thank you very much, all of you, for coming. Um, For those of you who don't know us and about our seminars, my name is Soraya Tremaine with Nazila Kharnay together and Marilyn Booth, who's on a sabbatical this year. We are conveners of these seminars. There are two seminars per term, on week three and week six, usually, we hold the seminars on women's rights. I'm very pleased to introduce our speaker today, Dr. Naysan Alparavad who is a visiting academic at the moment in Oxford but he is based at Yale University, a postdoctoral fellow at Yale University and Nathan did his PhD at Sussex University in Development Studies and his PhD was in Afghanistan and his main focus of interest is ethnicity and how development is giving an impact on ethnicity and he is working currently on the issues of ethnicity within its modern context and how the theories could be revised in the light of the globalization and all the other political and economic changes which are happening around the world and he is, his book is in the pipeline to be published very soon. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> I. I'm not going to go on because we have got Nathan's full CV on the poster and I, I will leave anything that I've left out for you to uh, elaborate on and the title is Between Love and Lineage, Elopement, Rights and Violence in an Afghan Valley. So Nathan, over to you please. Thank
1: you very much, it's a real pleasure to be here and to be able to share my research with you. Essentially what I'll be talking about today, the title kind of indicates, but this is kind of a piece of my PhD research that I haven't really looked at very much. It comes peripherally to some of the issues about interesting marriage that I looked at. And so it's really a chance when I got the invitation to come and share some data with you, a little bit of initial analysis and to get some feedback and questions as kind of a first step in hopefully ultimately publishing this and, and theorising it a little bit further. You'll probably see I haven't theorized very much what I'm talking about. There's some analysis about factors that have contributed to the, the case of elopement. So essentially, I'm, I'm keen for ideas, critiques, comments. I'm totally open. Just before we start, I'm just going to point out as well the photograph you see above me here is a photograph that's taken from the New York Times, a 2014 article looking at elopement in the case of Barmion. I'll say no more, I just wanted to add that so you know what you're looking at and b so you're understanding that I'm not basically ex- exposing the identities of the people that I've worked with, and you know, because obviously the dangerous implications. So, within this broader topic, I'm not going to give a summary to begin with because it kind of unfolds as we go through, but I've given here just a list of the kind of topics I'm going to touch on to expand the discussion. And the first part is what I'm doing now, giving an overview, but I'll also just give you a little outline of and the in question of the, in the title. And give you a little introduction to the profile of some of the ethnic communities in Balmion that we'll be talking about. And this helps build for the analysis that comes a little bit later. I'm then going to give uh, a little bit of an overview of marriage in the Barmion case. I'm sure most of you will be familiar or you'll be able to kind of assume some of the things I'm going to tell you. But again, that's just to prepare for the following discussion. And then I'm going to give you a case study. I'm going to read a case study which is taken from my thesis as an introduction, which really sets the scene. And from that point, it's a discussion about some of the factors that have resulted in the case study itself, going through the role of the state, post-2001 state reconstruction in Afghanistan, talking about the contemporary situation between two of the ethnic communities that we'll be looking at in terms of elopement. And I'll talk a bit about the human rights framework, the agenda, the organizations that have worked there. And I'm going to talk a little bit finally about some of the kind of breakdown of intergenerational controls between parents and children that are contributing to the emergence of a elopement before a few conclusions. You also have to excuse me, you can probably hear my voice is slightly hoarse. I, lo- I totally lost my voice on Monday, so I was panicking, but we're in a better situation now. But we
0: are very glad you brought it back. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so um, what I've got a, a, above me is a picture or uh, a map of Afghanistan, and you'll see the red star in the middle of that pink area. This is Bamiyan. Bamiyan is uh, it's one of the provinces of Afghanistan, the Red Star itself is Bamiyan Centre, which sits at the heart of the Bamiyan Valley. It's about 160-70 miles northwest of Kabul, now currently inaccessible by road for, oh, definitely for any internationals, but for um, many members of the Hazara Shia minority that uh, reside in this area, because you have to pass through a lot of Taliban-held territories and areas. I mentioned there the Hazara ethnic category. I'll talk a little bit on the next slide about them, but essentially, this, the red area you see is the Hazarajat, which essentially is the traditional homeland of the Hazara people. And Bamyan sits at the centre of that area, so the Bamyan Valley. It was selected not just because it's a remote mountain valley where you have these communities, but because it also represents a remote but political centre for this community. And there's three dominant ethnic categories i use the term categories rather than groups, because obviously the, the definition associated with these groups is continuously shifting and being contested. The Hazaras, who are a minority in the rest of the country, stand as a majority in Bamiyan. And you'll see why this becomes very important as we, as we move forward. They are uh, commonly viewed as originating from the Hazarajad, as I explained. They speak Hazaragi, which is a dialect of Persian spoken in this area. They are a Shia uh, minority, uh, Jafari, and they have a Mongol phenotype, so uh, what would be commonly associated with East Asians or those from the Mongol steppes. Uh, so very physically, a very particular phenotype that stands out compared to other communities. Now in relation to that, I'm going to skip to the, the Sayyid or Sardar community, because these are the two main ethnic categories I'll be talking about in terms of eloprant and in, in inter-ethnic marriages as we move forward. In opposition to the Hazara community, the Sa'id community claim to originate from the Arabian Peninsula and to be direct descendants from the Prophet. Now, this is very important because this is one of the reasons that they maintain a particular social standing in the community. And the Hazara and Sadat communities, they live together in communities, very close set of relationships, and along with being descendants from the Prophet, they speak Dari, the predominant dialect of Persian in Afghanistan and also Shia. Now, one thing I wanted to point out is that the Hazaras, given the way that the Afghan state was formed in the late 19th century, have always been associated with low status. The Bamiyan Valley and surrounding areas were pacified very aggressively by the expanding Pashtun state at the time. It was done with British money, it was done with British weapons, and essentially, once many Hazaras were killed, the elites were eliminated. This land was settled by a lot of the Tajik community who were given prime land in the valley itself. And the reason I mention this is it was on that basis a lot of Hazaras were taken into slavery, men and women, the late 19th century into Kabul. So they've always been seen as a very kind of bonded labor, low status uh, community in Afghanistan. At that time, when this area was pacified, the Hazara political class were eliminated and the Sardot community, given their special status as descendants from the Prophet, kind of occupied this interlocutor role between the Hazara community and the new state. So they've always had this kind of political and religious leadership role in the community, which is changing, we'll get to in a moment. And the Tajik community, as I've mentioned there, I'm not going to go into great depth because i are not a focus the talk, but they're uh, a Dari-speaking, non-tribalized, essentially in opposition to Pashtuns that are organized tribally, and they're a Sunni the community and a very small minority in the, in the province. And one last thing to explain, which is crucial to the argument that comes later, it's the way that the Sardot community maintain their elite status over the Hazara community, and that's to do with marriage patterns and positive marriage rules. So because they need to maintain their descent from the Prophet, the Sardot community, they will always take a, a Sardot young man that will be carrying on the family name, a kind of patron line of descent, will always marry a Sa'id woman to maintain that bloodline, to keep the purity. They often take Hazara women as a second wife, But they will never take Hazaras as a first wife. vice versa, Hazaras will never receive a Sayyid daughter in terms of marriage. So it maintains that. It's a sign and maintains that kind of social standard, let's say, in the community. And again, that is changing, which is what we're going to talk about in a moment. This is a picture of Bamiyan Valley. You can see the contour lines of the valleys on both sides. And the pink area in the center is kind of the verdant agricultural lands that were given primarily to the Tajik community when uh, the Bamiyan Valley was pacified in the late 19th century. See the white dots, such as Sopkul, Dawudi, Zabaron, Petal Lahman across the top, they're all Tajik communities. And the rest of that, Tolwara uh, also, which is a very wealthy community given its position in the middle of the agricultural area. The others, so the southern and central areas, Taibuti, Shintepa, Tajik, all the name would suggest, otherwise, these are all Hazara stroke Sardar communities. So the center, it's really kind of a rural area mixed between lots of villages that make up the provincial center. This is a photograph from the Buddha niches, which if you see that the two marks on the top left there, the Buddha niches, which were famously destroyed by the Taliban in March 2001. This is a photograph taken from the top overlooking the valley. And I thought it's just nice to give you an idea of exactly what we're, we're talking about. And you can see center left of the photograph, the Bamian Bazaar there, the long road with the buildings, to the right is Tolwara, some of the villages in the foreground, and in the distance on the slight plateau before the foothills is the kind of administrative centre, the airstrip, and that's where the New Zealand military base was up until 2012, when a lot of the international forces left Afghanistan. And a final picture, so we're all in in the mood is uh, a photograph taken here with some of my uh, research participants in one of the kind of community areas in the, in the bottom right photograph. Obviously taken in the winter because it's snowing and freezing. Okay, so kind of a very quick overview and introduction just to help to contextualise the patterns of marriage in Bamian. Marriage is typically a very strategic affair in Bamian, as in many other parts of the Middle East and South Asia, which is normally organised to forge alliances and for financial gain. So typically you would have uh, cross-cousin marriage in which branches of immediate family would be cementing relationships where they go outside of that kind of classic configuration. Often, in you know, a lot of the people I spoke to, would, you might have a Plamiani father who will have his son or daughter married to maybe a friend from the member of the mosque or perhaps it's a sort of work colleague or somebody intends to have a work uh, collaboration with to kind of forge relationships. Economic gains in terms of bride price. Again, I'm sure many of you are familiar with the concept, but the idea of the groom's family paying a lump sum to the parents of the brides in exchange essentially for their daughter as part of the marriage. And this ranges from one to $10,000 in the case of Afghanistan or the case of Bomiya, which is an exorbitant price compared to the incomes of many of the, the local families. But more importantly, marriage also regulates sexual activity biological and social reproduction. In that all Afghans or all Bamyanis are expected to marry, sex outside of marriage is unacceptable, sometimes with the penalty of death, but definitely kind of social, social stigma and having children out of wedlock is also unacceptable. But in terms of reproducing kind of social forms, you see that marriage normally takes place within the family, as I said before, and often does not happen across inter-ethnic or intersectarian lines. So, here I'm talking primarily, you will never have a Hazara Tajik marriage, won't take place, seen as a very bad thing, and that's largely a product of conflict, but also for other reasons. I'll mention that in a moment. The exception to this inter ethnic, ethnic marriage is the Hazara Sardar dynamic we're talking about. But as I explained earlier, actually in the scholarly literature, they're almost seen as the same ethnic community, or have been up until quite recently, with the Sardar having a kind of a special social class almost. And on the intersectarian marriage, the Tajik Hazara, the Shia-Sunni dynamic of marriages, very uncommon, except in one case, between two of the communities, and they were the kind of richest communities, Tolwara and S- uh, Sainabad, in uh, the Bamyan Valley, where the elites in both communities were making cross-ethnic marriages, mostly for partnerships where they were trading with one another, for example. That stopped in 1979 with a Soviet invasion, and has again started on a very small scale afterwards, which is a very unique a pattern of marriage in Bamyan and elsewhere. I wanted to just let you know that there are cases where it's happening. And the last little spot of uh, information is the types of marriage. And this is where we kind of move towards the discussion a discussion of the There's four main, let's say, processes or pathways that lead to marriage in the Barmian case. The first is Estimo uh, de which is roughly translated as proposal marriage. This is a very classic, idealized route to marriage. One family approaching another, making a proposal or suggesting a proposal, a long drawn out negotiation between families, particularly the women sizing up the other families, is it appropriate, is it not? You'll then go to an official engagement ceremony, and you go through a number of kind of ritualised practices right down to the marriage itself. You have alish, which is exchange marriage, which is essentially where a father will swap a daughter for a bride from another family. Now that may be a straight swap in which his son will marry someone coming in from a different family, versus his daughter marrying a son on the other side, but it could also be for himself as a second bride, depending on the circumstances. And this is generally done to minimize the costs, because there's no bride price, because it's a straight exchange, and to strengthen relationships between already existing kind of uh, groups of people. Dohtarabad, feud bride it translates to, which is essentially compensation marriage, where a daughter is given to compensate for a serious crime that was committed. So for example, If I was to kill your son, they have no intention of doing that, but if I was to kill your son, you know, there'd be some sort of meeting of, let's say, political and religious leaders, and I would then give you a daughter to compensate for that loss of your family. Obviously, that's very problematic for the daughter that joins the family because a lot of retribution and negativity is directed towards her. And the last type, which we're going to talk about here further, is Estevij Fahra which is escape marriage, the direct translation, or elopement. And I'm not going to get into that too much because I'm about to give you a, a case study, which kind of outlines the, the one particular case. And I just wanted to very briefly touch on a few of the impacts of conflict. So, Balmion from 1979 with the Soviet invasion, up essentially till 2001, if not continuing today, is still suffering from a lot of, I wouldn't say conflict, but a of violence, uh, definitely is um, continuing and unfolding in, in the valley. As I said earlier, this obviously stopped any tendency for inter-ethnic or intersectarian marriage because the battle lines, physically, were drawn across the Barmian Valley, but also the way that a lot of the conflict was rationalized at the time and afterwards were along ethnic or sectarian lines. So you had a physical and kind of social divide between these communities. And then very quickly, just to touch on two other areas, is due to kind of insecurity and an increased sense of vulnerability for women in the eyes of their parents during these periods of conflict, you saw uh, girls getting married younger, and the barriers to marriage being removed, the idea being the quicker you marry your daughter, the safer she is from predatory males, from militias, from armed commanders, etc., which resulted in an upsurgence, or a, let's say an uptick in exchange marriages, because there's no costs, it can be done very quickly, and it's a way of securing both daughters from, let's say, different branches of the family very quickly. But let's get to what we're here to talk about. Okay. Okay. So when I first arrived in Bamiyan, I was very immediately presented with some very high-profile cases about Hazara Sardar elopement. And this is the case where a young Hazara man will elope with a young side woman, which, as I mentioned earlier, is totally unacceptable, because side women are expected to marry other side men to maintain the purity of the bloodline. So I very quickly you know, checked my, my literature, tried to understand what was going on. And there's nothing written about, I mean, very little written about elopement full stop in Afghanistan in uh, academic literature, which is surprising. Perhaps not. Nothing written about the kind of growing schism between the Hazara and Saïd communities. So immediately I said, Okay, I I have to look at this, I have to see kind of what's going on. So I set about trying to find some research participants to talk to to get a grasp of this issue. And a Syed friend of mine uh, suggested I contact Syed Anwari uh, to, to better get a grasp of the, the, the situation and the nature of this complicated issue. And I was told that Syed Anwari was well known, uh, held a position as the head of a local NGO, and could talk authoritatively on recent high-profile Hazara-Sardot elopement cases. This is his exception for my thesis. I met him on two occasions, and we talked at length about the variety of Hazara and Sardot perspectives on this issue of elopement. And Said Anwari struck me as an intelligent man and a fair man, and he explained in a balanced manner the logic behind elopement and the retaliatory actions of the Sardat community against these men and women that were perpetrating these social crimes. And during one of our uh, discussions, he said this. Religiously, there is no problem. Hazaras, mainly those who are educated and have studied religion, are trying to put pressure on the Sardar to make them understand that there's no religious reason for not marrying one's daughter to a Hazara but this is a very sensitive issue for the Sardat community. They don't want to hear about this issue, but from my point of view, there's no religious reason not to marry Hazaras. And I responded, so why is it such a sensitive issue? And he said, the Sardat, and I think this is a really key kind of um, set of statements. The Sardat have been leading the Hazara community for many centuries. They are proud of being Muhammad's bloodline, peace be upon him. They are trying to maintain their leadership of the Hazara. And on the other hand, the Sardat he pauses for a moment, believe they should be respected. They want to preserve that respect, even, and again he kind of pauses for thought, even though religiously there's no problem, there is earth or customs that must be adhered to. If you look at the customs we have in Afghanistan and in Bamiyan, and mostly in remote areas, families are not giving their daughters to other families. They feel ashamed. And then he kind of pauses and looks quite uncomfortable. If I ask my uncle about these issues, he will not reply. He'll just say, leave it, don't talk to me about this. It's not to be broached. Again, I responded, so it's very sensitive. It's so sensitive that they never talk about it, he says. They don't have a clear answer. It's just customary. Religiously, there's no reason. So I say to him, so you're saying there are two causes. First, people are ashamed to give their daughters away. And secondly, it's a custom linked to the leadership of the Hazaras by the Sardat. Yes, yes, he says. Let me be very clear. Now the Hazara are trying to make the Sardar understand that this is not a problem, but the Sardar are very sensitive about the issue, and a gap is emerging between these two groups as a result. Hazaras say the Sardar can easily marry marry our daughters. We we are not able to marry their daughters, and at this time this is a very big problem, but not religiously. They are right as well, but it's really a sensitive issue. And he begins to laugh, saying which no Sardar would accept. They are happy to kill their own daughters if they try to marry a Hazara. And he continues laughing. It was a few days after our second meeting, which okay. were this extracts taken from, when one of my Said research assistants told me that Said Anwari was at the center of one of the highest profile cases of elopement in the Bangan Valley. And I went about understanding the nature of that case and his role in it from a series of interviews with uh, different Hazara and Said research participants. And this is the case. Homaira, Said Anwari's sister, had met Jalil, a young Hazara, at the University of Bamya. They'd studied in the same class, and while keeping in touch secretly by mobile phone, their relationship had slowly blossomed. Romaira's sister occasionally ran as a go-between, exchanging gifts between the couple. Almost 18 months later, after Jalil's father refused to approach Romaira's father to regress an engagement, they eloped to Kabul. Immediately upon discovering the elopement of his daughter, Romaira's father rallied other Sardat elders citing the elopement as an affront to the Sardat community. Following allegations that Hamira had been kidnapped by Jalil's family and in response to pressure exerted by a number of influential Sardat elders, Jalil's father spent a short period of time in, in prison. Furthermore, after tracking his daughter to Kabul, Hamira's father had a forcibly returned to Bamyan. Jalil, fearing for her life, contacted the Hazara-dominated Afghan Independent Human Rights Commission, with the support of the UN mission political mission to Afghanistan they intervened acting to preserve Humaira's right to choose her partner the human rights commission placed her in a government supported safe house for women in Bamyan town shortly afterwards she was relocated with Jalil Zaharat where a mullah provided by the state married them again mobilizing Sardar elders allegations were made by Humaira's father that she had been taken against her will kidnapped as it were after some months of concerted pressure and in a bid to refute the allegation that Humaira had been kidnapped, the Human Rights Commission escorted both Humaira and Jalil back to Town. In a supervised exchange with her father and brother, Said Amori, Humaira told them that she had left voluntarily with Jalil. She explained that she was now married and expecting his child. After a very tense exchange with Humaira's family, they all left and she was then escorted with Jalil back to the safe house in Town but they made it as far as the front gate of the Human Rights Commission. Here, they were attacked. Jalil managed to defend himself, but Humaira was stabbed three times in the stomach by her brother, Said Anwari. He was detained and she was rushed to hospital alive, but with potentially fatal wounds. An hour later, while in intensive care in the bombing hospital, a second brother climbed through a window and attacked her again in the hospital. Police posted at the hospital quickly restrained him and thankfully, both her and her baby, Angeliel are all safe and have been relocated to an unknown location by the UN in Afghanistan. Do you, you speak the same language? Or you spoke English with him? What language did you I d- speak? I don't speak... Good question. I don't speak Dari fluently. My father's Iranian, but uh, I didn't grow up speaking Farsi. Okay. But a lot of the interviews were done either myself in Dari or with translation. Okay. So just... I just use that case study as a way to point out the severity of the issue and some of the violent retribution that comes back from the side community on the couples themselves that have eloped. And it's probably just worth before I move on to say that you know elopement is still only counts of a very small number of marriages in the Balmion Valley, but it's one that is increasing because of the circumstances I'm about to outline and one that obviously is reaching a lot of or well, because of social media the news and kind of increased connectivity is becoming increasingly utilised in political debates and for various kind of deepening social tensions in, in the, the respective communities. So what, what's going on? Why is this changing? Why might it be an issue? And these are just kind of preliminary thoughts. So I would like, you know, I'm quite keen to get your feedback at the end. And I apologise for the heavy amount of text on the next three slides. But what, what I'm arguing in my thesis generally, but also I think is very relevant here is the role of the state post-2001 Afghanistan and the way that is changing relationships between different ethnic communities in Afghanistan and obviously in Bamiyan as well. So to give you a little bit of an overview, in 2001, following the US-led intervention in the country, there was a very series of processes, starting with the Bonn Agreement and various transitional authorities that were undertaken as a means to get to the ratification of the Afghan constitution in 2004. The constitution itself is based on a lot of human and minority rights within an Islamic framework and they're quite central to the way the constitution has been laid out and also, crucially, the constitution recognises different ethnic and religious communities in the country. And what that's done is essentially set up a... has defined the way that the government operates, the way that claims are made against the government and the way that the government makes, uh, allocates resources in response. You also see... We were discussing this over lunch, but essentially the way that their political parties were banned in in Afghanistan, because they feared that ethnicity would be used as a mobilizing factor in political parties, you might think that was sensible logic, but what actually happened is it allowed Karzai to set up very detailed patronage networks through the government, and that was done along ethnic lines. Vice presidents allocated from each ethnic community, the allocation of ministries to those different ethnic communities, and allocation of resources down through those ministries to local levels. In a lot of cases, these vice-presidents were crucial in mobilizing these ethnic communities in exchange for votes to guarantee votes. So a lot of uh, concessions were made to the Hazara community, for example, by Karzai, in exchange for the, at least the commitment to support him in future elections. And what happened at local levels in Bamiyan was really crucial to this discussion uh, about elopement. For the first time, Bamiyan actually had a Hazara governor appointed in 2003 the support of the vice president. Given that this is a Hazara homeland, it was seen as being appropriate. And this was the first of a number of political appointments given to Hazaras where under the Taliban regime it would have been Tajik uh, appointees and prior to that it was largely the Saeed community in leadership roles. So we had a shift in who was in the kind of leadership positions in the government. These political gains translated into economic gains, a lot of the lands, the housing and agricultural lands that were confiscated in the late 19th century and again by the Taliban and given to Tajik communities were forcibly or through questionable legitimate processes taken back into the hands of the Hazara community. Likewise the marketplace which used to be a bustling Tajik-owned marketplace before the conflict started was uh, rebuilt and redistributed to Hazara households. So we see the uh, economic, let's say, uh, means of production as well as trade both shifting into the hands of Hazaras. And there were social gains on the ground. There was one school in Bamiyan prior to 2001, which was an all-boys school, which was right in Bamiyan center. And now we have a number of newly constructed schools, boys and girls schools. We have uh, health centers. We have the university which although was in place prior to 2001 was essentially a shell and now it's become a relatively well respected centre of learning primarily for the Hazara community. The Tajiks go out of state, uh, out of province, sorry. So essentially I'm just trying to very quickly show that there's been a real shift in terms of control of resources, different productive resources in Bamyan, And this crucially has led to a rise, or the perception of a rising status for the Hazara community. If you remember back at the beginning they've always been very low status. But now we see a kind of resurgent Hazara community, particularly in Bamiyan, also at the national level. And this has led them to start to challenge a lot of long-standing unequal relationships. And one of the key ways this has been articulated is in relationship to the Syed community in terms of this marriage pattern, as I described before, with we take your daughters, but you don't take ours because you're inferior. The political relationship between these communities has been fracturing since 1979. Soviet invasion around that time, particularly with Iranian involvement, trying to support the Hazara community. A lot of Hazaras going to uh, Qom and elsewhere in Iran for uh, religious instruction. And I think this idea about Estewaj Fahrari or elopement, particularly, is a really key way of challenging Sardar's superiority now that the Hazara are in a kind of descendant position. And it's not only by kind of the classic claiming of their daughters. But I think it also gets to the very the, the narrative, let's say, that underpins solar identity, this idea of pure descent. By directly, essentially, eloping with their daughters, it's undermining that idea that they can maintain some sort of pure descent. So it's also control over women, but also, I think, directly challenging that narrative itself. And as we heard here in this case study, it results in a lot of retali- retaliatory violence, which is justified or framed in ethnic terms by this, uh, this, the Saldok community back on the Hazaras. We've actually seen, it's not directly relevant, but we've actually seen over the past five or six years, the Saldok community trying to organize politically as a, uh, separate communities away from the Hazara community in Kabul for parliamentary elections and other, uh, other kind of uh, political platforms. So there's really kind of a many levels, this growing schism between the two communities. Okay, I wanted to just touch a little bit about the idea of human rights promotion and the action of human rights institutions. There were some examples in the case study there, right? And these are just preliminary thoughts, but one thing I think is very clear talking to a lot of young men and women, and actually older people as well, in Balmion, is that the you know, kind of human rights language and concepts have been promoted very aggressively in Balmion Center, particularly the area that I'm working on, but also across the province. A, because it's uh, a secure context, so that the Human Rights Commission can work relatively safely, but B, also because the Hazara community is seen seen as being somewhat more progressive than other communities in the country. So there's been a real drive and a push of these kind of democratic, human rights-type ideals uh, in the region. And it's had a real marked impact on at least the ideal of the freedom to choose your partner. Obviously, there are social norms that kind of push up against that, but it's definitely something that was articulated by a lot of young men and women that I spoke to over uh, two years in Bombyam and we see, you know, the intervention of UNAMA, which is the United Nations Assistance Mission to Afghanistan, the political mission, and the Afghanistan Independent Human Rights Commission you know, I think it's really it's created the idea of elopement as a tangible possibility for young couples. It's obviously a very contentious one, it obviously has a lot of, a lot of challenges associated with it, but it's the idea now that it's, you can't be sponsored by the state or by the UN and will be supported. So I think in a certain sense it's it's raised the potential. There's also been a lot of uh, coverage of these elopement cases, so it's very prominent in people's minds that it's happening. But also, I think it's had another effect, which is about reaching into households and placing some pressure on parents in their decision-making about marriage as well. And I've included just a quote here to kind of articulate, help articulate that, which is from a, Syed, uh, a man that I interviewed. And he says, When a boy and girl fall in love and their parents don't agree, they have to escape. Human rights lets this happen, or lets them. The girl's parents have to accept their daughter's suggestion because they want to be respected in society. If they don't, she will escape and no one will respect them. So they want to preserve their respect. She may even threaten to kill herself. If the parents of the son don't accept, he will threaten to go to Iran, which essentially means going elsewhere to work, normally to Iran. Their behavior will change in the home, they will escape or they will kill themselves. So you see, nowadays, parents must accept so in a sense, the role of the UN and the Human Rights Commission is a way of challenging these positive or these unequal kind of uh, marriage rules in favour of Hazaras and also the side women that are choosing to elope. So I'm not placing a value judgment here on whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, but obviously it's, it's pushing a particular agenda which doesn't necessarily sit comfortably with uh, existing cultural norms. And I've just put a question at the end there that I've been thinking about. is uh, you know, Does this human rights agenda further interest ethnic violence? Or is it actually, and or, providing an incentive to parents to accept new marriage arrangements in Bomiya? And the, the last area that I want to touch on before I kind of you know, talk about some tentative conclusions is just more broadly the changes that are happening in Bomiya households in terms of the breakdown of intergenerational controls or social controls of parents over children. I, I put a note here that elopement is not only occurring between Hazara and Sardat, as in the elopement cases we talked about but they were also happening between Hazaras and Tajiks as well, so across other, let's say, unacceptable divisions. And actually, the, the photograph in the background, the one I first told you about, is actually between Hazara man and a the Tajik, a Tajik girl. Again, I think it talks to the same kind of ascendant standpoint of the Hazara community, but I think the, you know, the, the kind of motive I was talking about before in terms of undermining the, the Sardar ethnic narrative isn't the case here. But I think there's a number of factors that are kind of playing into what's taking place generally in terms of the breakdown of social controls in Balmyung. And just before I go into them, I'm just going to raise this one quote that I heard over and over again from people when I was talking to them. And it's kind of this refrain that these stories happen in schools. It's all about the school system that's causing problems now. And it it may be a fair point, actually, but I'll explain why that's the case in a moment. Um, This is obviously from older Hazara uh, inside men and women. In, in fact, actually, the university is known as the, the, the house of love or the house of marriage, <laughs> depending who you speak to. So there's three or four main things, I think, factors that are kind of leading to this kind of changing relationship between parents and, and children. First is obviously the increased levels of education and awareness. Now, as, as I alluded to before, there was one school previously that girls would not go to. So now we see, at least in Bombay and Centre, the area that was working, a lot of girls going to school a lot more schools, so there's associated with that increasing levels of awareness and confidence uh, and ability to articulate themselves at home, uh, not necessarily in defiance of their parents, but on some sort of kind of semi-equal basis, let's say, compared to the situation they would have found themselves in prior. Also in terms of awareness, you had an influx of returnees, particularly Hazaras coming back from Iran. Almost 8,000 people, that's the official figures, resettled between 2003 and 8 in Bonyo which is 10% of the population. So a vast influx of not just young, but very well-educated individuals with a very different mindset in terms of gender relations and, and patterns of marriage. I mean, I'm not saying uh, radically progressive, but compared to Afghanistan, I'd say somewhat so. You also have the emergence of co-educational spaces, primarily at the university, but also, although shifts in some of the schools will be male and female shifts, there's often overlaps so of young men and women, or boys and girls... Meeting one another increasingly, but definitely the university level, people being in classrooms together, uh, developing friendly relationships, which occasionally will spill across into more, maybe not physically intimate, but at least romantic relationships as well. And I think this is where the last one comes into play. And again, we saw that in the um, in the case study about this use of mobile phone technology. It's almost impossible now for parents to control who their pe- their children speak to. Now again, I'm probably talking about a particular demographic, slightly wealthy, better educated demographic that you will see in, in Barmian Centre. But mobile phones being the medium in which people sneak out for a quick call with someone they know from university, you know, this kind of interaction which will lead to a deepening of their relationship and potentially to elopement if there's a refusal for a kind of a proposal scenario. So a few tentative conclusions which are really just a summary of kind of what I've said. And really that the first is about the p- political reconstruction process in Afghanistan and how that's led to the rising status of Hazaras and the challenging of inequalities and the way that that's played out. And core to that is, I think, uh, control of women's sexuality and reproductive functions and that kind of contestation that's taking place uh, between uh, some of the ethnic categories in, in Bamyan and elsewhere. It's a point about human rights narratives and the action of human rights institutions which are kind of further challenging the status quo uh, and kind of entrenched cultural norms. Which leads to potentially more tensions and violence, but also this demand upon parents to conform somewhat to the wishes of their children. And there's actually a, a whole separate discussion here that I haven't touched on, which is about the, the growing economy. How there's a lot more money now in Bamyan compared to prior to 2001, and the way that now, given bride price, parents are increasingly likely to go outside of a very refined family line because they can get more money for their daughter if they go to someone that they don't know. They can negotiate a higher bride price. So there's a lot of couples that I spoke to who who are having some sort of romantic relationship that their parents didn't know about, and then a man would approach a brother who would suggest the idea to his father, who then might approach the family of his existing desired girlfriend, and then because he could get more money for his his, uh, daughter, for example, the father of this uh, lady would be more likely to accept what would be seen as normally an appropriate kind of proposal, per se. So there's a lot of young people almost negotiating this kind of estu uh, waj this proposal marriage format we talked about earlier. And to that part of that's to do with the economy and also them becoming a bit more savvy about how to, to make this happen. Mm-hmm. But I've not talked about that. And the last two is this thing about the changing levels of education, awareness and patterns of interaction, which I think is why people are coming together, which is resulting in a, a different let's say, way that people are identifying partners, which in an extreme case may lead to elopement, but also to a, this kind of a redrawing of how marriage happens, let's say, or um, people come together. And the very last point which I want to touch on, which I unfortunately didn't look at when I was doing my field work, is I think that this leaves unmarried side women in a very particular conundrum, particularly those that are better, better educated um, that you might find at the university in which they navigate between their own desires for marriage, the love in the title, and also the marriage expectations from their communities, which is the lineage from the title. And I think think there's a real scope here to do further research, almost adopting kind of a psychological, anthropological perspective, looking at kind of individuals and the way that they engage with these kind of emerging, well, norms, but also emerging patterns of kind of interaction. And I think really interesting to look at that, not just in the case of side women, but also looking at the decision-making that's made by bizarre men in terms of choosing to follow these lines of kind of elopement and marriage, etc. So I will leave it there. I'm sure there's a lot more things that I could say, and I probably have painted a very bad picture, but I, I hope you got some of the threads and some of the issues that are coming through. And just to say thank you very much for listening, thank you for the invitation, and I will take questions, comments, and criticisms. Thank you very much. Gracias.